Well, hello, everybody. It is so good to see all of you. I hope you're doing really well today. Hello, if you're watching online, at home, on vacation, wherever you are. It's awesome that we can worship together at a distance, and I just love that. So I hope you're all doing well. We are getting towards the end of our summer series, looking at the book of Acts, how it started, how it's going. We're looking at the birth of the church how this movement that we are a part of today uh, began and what we can learn about our own experience in the church because of what they experienced at those very early momentous moments at the beginning of the church. Now, I'm not going to recap the whole series for you. If you, if you want to know what happened, you got to either read Acts or go back and watch those messages. But I will tell you that at this point in the story, kind of nearing the end of the book, uh, we have seen some incredible things happen. God's Holy Spirit has... has come to dwell inside people, the followers of Jesus, and they are doing miraculous things. They're transforming lives. They are healing people. It's incredible. The message about Jesus' good news, it's spreading all over the Roman Empire, and it's really cool. And we've followed especially the Apostle Paul as he has gone from city to city to plant churches, and he's experienced some opposition, but, but Nevertheless, regardless, it keeps, the, the gospel keeps spreading and putting down roots. It's spreading like wildfire. And today, we're going to look at some developments that happened in the city of Ephesus, which is on the western coast of what is today Turkey, uh, the city of Ephesus, where some big things were happening, and uh, well, we'll see. We'll see what happens. Some crazy stuff was going on, and we were about to see some opposition to that crazy stuff. Uh, to give you just a, a taste of the kind of crazy things that were going on, first of all, there's a story in Acts, and I do not understand this one. Apparently, like this handkerchief that Paul had or touched or something like that was taken to somebody and they were sick and they touched the handkerchief and in the name of Jesus, they were healed. And I don't know about magic handkerchiefs. That one is not really, doesn't fit super well into my worldview, but I guess it's there. And then there's this other story of a guy, uh, well, there's this demon-possessed man and some, some of the, these Jewish brothers, not Christians, they went and they wanted to cast the demon out of this man. And so they said, uh, you know, we cast you out in the name of Jesus who Paul preaches. And they're not believers. And so they don't have the Holy Spirit within them. And this demon-possessed man says, well, I've heard of Paul. I know Jesus, but who are you? And he jumps on him and he beats him up and they have to run for the hills. And it's this crazy thing. And so Ephesus, this is all happening in and around Ephesus. It's a city that, we'll talk about this, is very spiritual, okay? They're very spiritually minded people in Ephesus. And all of this stuff happening gets everybody's attention. And they realize, okay, all right. Especially the Christians, they realize we had better start taking all this spiritual stuff seriously because uh, we shouldn't just mess around. And I want to show you one of the examples of how they realize this. And this is where we'll begin. So go ahead and grab a Bible. Turn to Acts 19, starting in verse 17 on uh, page 924 in the house Bibles in the seat in front of you. We're going to look at a couple stories of what happened in Ephesus. So this is, uh, this is right after the whole demon-possessed man jumping on the, on the guys and beating them up. This is what happened. Verse 17, the story of what happened spread quickly all throughout Ephesus to Jews and Greeks alike. A solemn fear descended on the city, and the name of the Lord Jesus was greatly honored. Many who became believers confessed their sinful practices. A number of them who had been practicing sorcery brought their incantation books and they burned them at a public bonfire. The value of these books was several million dollars. So the message of, about the Lord spread widely and had a powerful effect. Okay, so we'll stop there. People in Ephesus, it says, the first verse in that, are filled with fear 
at what's going on, filled with fear. Now, this word in Greek, I talked about this in the first message in the series. In Greek, it's the word phobos. And phobos, it means fear, like we would think of like terror. It also means astonishment or awe. I use the illustration of, of like uh, Jurassic Park. If you're at Jurassic Park and you see a dinosaur, you feel phobos. Either it's astonishment, like, wow, life finds a way. Or you're thinking, like, I'm about to die, and, that, you know, and that's the terror that you feel. So it's that, that same idea. And I think, my hunch, is that in this use of the word phobos, I think it was both. I think a lot of people were astonished and amazed and in awe, and I think some people might have been a little bit scared, including these, these sorcerers who were doing some incantations and sorcery on the side. Now, verse 19 if you look at it, it actually has an, it conveys the idea that potentially many of these sorcerers were actually already Christians, but that they were still kind of doing a little sorcery on the side. You know, they're following Jesus and they're doing their incantations, maybe for money or maybe just because they wanted to, to have it both ways. Well, after that whole incident with the demon-possessed guy beating up the, the guys that weren't really following Jesus, they realized, okay, we got to take this seriously. We can't be doing it both ways. We can't serve the dark powers of this world and serve Christ. We have to choose. And so they do. They have this huge bonfire. And at this bonfire, they, they burn these incantation books worth several million dollars, it says. Now, that's in today's money. And, and frankly, I, I don't know that that totally hits home with just how much this actually was worth. In Greek, it actually says that they were worth 50,000 silver coins. And a silver coin was what you got paid when you worked a full day. If you worked in the fields, someone's, uh, someone's fields, you're harvesting all day long, they paid you a silver coin. And so this is 50,000 of those, which is the equivalent of one person working every single day for 137 years. That's how much these books were worth. So it's wild. This is very, very expensive. You can imagine that something like this, a spectacle like this, this got people's attention in Ephesus. Because, again, this is a spiritual city, and the followers of Jesus that were there were now starting to just drastically change the spiritual dynamics of that city, which is a big deal. And so, of course, you can imagine, as this, the dynamics are changing so rapidly, there's a little bit of friction there. And some of the world, some of the, the other people in Ephesus start to push back a little bit. So let's take a look at how that happens. Let's read verse 23. About that time of, of the bonfire, serious trouble developed in Ephesus concerning the way. That just means the way of, of Jesus. It began with Demetrius a silversmith who had a large business manufacturing silver shrines of the Greek goddess Artemis. He kept many craftsmen busy. He called them together along with others employed in similar trades, and he addressed them as follows. Gentlemen, you know that our wealth comes from this business, but as you have seen and heard, this man Paul has persuaded many people that handmade gods aren't really gods at all. And he's done this not only here in Ephesus, but throughout the entire province. Of course, I'm not just talking about the loss of public respect for our business. I'm also concerned that the temple of our great goddess Artemis will lose its influence and that Artemis, this magnificent goddess worshipped throughout the province of Asia and all across the world, will be robbed of her great prestige. At this, their anger boiled, and they began shouting, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians! Soon the whole city was filled with confusion. Everybody rushed to the amphitheater, dragging along Gaius and Aristarchus, who were Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. Paul wanted to go in too, but the believers wouldn't let him. 
Some of the officials of the province, friends of Paul, also sent a message to him begging him not to risk his life by entering the amphitheater. Inside, the people were all shouting some one thing and some another. Everything was in confusion. In fact, many of them didn't even know why they were there. The Jews in the crowd pushed Alexander forward and told him to explain the situation. He motioned for silence and he tried to speak. But when the crowd realized he was a Jew, they started shouting again and they kept it up for about two hours. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Okay. So this is a little bit off the rails. This is getting intense. This is getting kind of crazy. This riot has broken out. Now, I won't read the whole story, but, but here's how it ends. After a lot more confusion, a lot more shouting, the city's mayor, I guess, it was city clerk who was kind of like a mayor, uh, he comes out and he makes a little speech and he convinces the crowd to disperse, and, and they ultimately do. And so it may seem, okay, well, that's kind of anticlimactic. Turns out the, the riot didn't really turn into anything, except a couple things make it clear that that's not the case. In fact, this riot, it was a pretty shocking turn of events in Ephesus. For one thing, Luke, the author of Acts, he goes out of his way to make sure that we've got this whole riot captured really, really well. Um, And for another thing, it's really clear that this riot left a significant impact on the church in Ephesus. Imagine, it it was by the skin of their teeth that these guys weren't murdered by this angry, ravenous crowd. Uh, Paul wanted to go into the, to the amphitheater and, and a bunch of people, the other believers, some, some city officials were like, Paul, you can't do it. You might die. It's entirely possible that if he had gone, he would have been, been publicly executed right there and his story would have been over. So imagine being a Christian in Ephesus. Up until this point, it's all awe and wonder and excitement and God's changing lives and now your neighbors are furious with you. Your neighbors are, are, are wanting to take you out because you are threatening their livelihood. It's, it's, it's really starting to, to simmer up this opposition to the way, to the movement of Jesus. So this was terrifying. In fact, if you look a little bit later in chapter 20, Paul is on his way down to Jerusalem and it would have been very normal for him to stop in Ephesus on the way, but he doesn't. He goes the long way around and he wants to meet with the Ephesian elders. We'll talk about this next week, but uh, he wants to meet with the Ephesian elders and he meets them on some island a five days journey away from Ephesus. This might be why, because it is no longer safe for Paul in this big influential city. Okay, so I wanted you to get the context of this, this riot I want to take a second and talk about why it happened, why there was a riot in the first place, because this is where we're going to start to discern some of the, the uh, aspects of what was going on in the early church that, frankly, are still going on today. So let's talk about why. Why did this riot happen? Well, broadly speaking, when you look at the, the book of Acts, Luke, the author of Acts, he, he weaves a story and, and tells us that there's a, essentially a pattern that takes place over and over and over again. It's a pattern where uh, Paul or whoever goes into a city and preaches the gospel and tells people about Jesus and lives are changed and often people are healed and there's miracles that take place. And, and so the gospel, the good news of Jesus, begins to take root in the city and then, almost without fail, opposition comes up. There's, there's some kind of pushback. The world in one form or another, begins to push back. Sometimes it it turns into imprisonment. Sometimes it's unrest. Sometimes it's even violence. The riot in Ephesus, it fits perfectly into that pattern. The gospel was taken root, and the world pushed back. So Ephesus was an influential city in the region at the time. 
And it was home, this is one of the reasons it was influential, it was home to the uh, Temple of Artemis. And this is, we don't know exactly what it looked like, this is an artist's rendition, but it was, every, every account says it was one of the wonders of the ancient world, the great wonders of the ancient world, like the pyramids. It was a big deal. It was actually four times bigger than the Parthenon, okay? So this is a huge, huge temple. Um, the whole city, all of Ephesus was built around the worship of, of, of Artemis. And everybody in the city, if you were a good Ephesian citizen, you had one of her little shrines in your home and you could pray to it as you left for the day and light candles to Artemis and leave her little gifts. Frankly, it's kind of similar to how um, many shrines work in like modern day uh, Southeast Asia, for example. So this was a normal, everything in the city revolved around Artemis. Now on top of that, if Ephesus was known as a hub for all kinds of other uh, dark and powerful spiritual mystical forces, witchcraft and sorcery, like that was kind of what happened in Ephesus. So again, uh, you know, all those sorcerers burning incantation books, it was a very spiritual city, okay? It was very spiritual. And as Paul would later describe it, there were some dark forces at work in Ephesus. Uh, he, he wrote a letter to the Ephesians, to the church in Ephesus and some surrounding churches about, about what they were facing. And, and here's what he said. He said, we're not fighting against flesh and blood enemies, Ephesians. No, we're fighting against evil rulers and authorities of the unseen world, against mighty powers in this dark world and against evil spirits in the heavenly places. He's saying, look, church in Ephesus, this is what we're up against. We're not just fighting against, against people. We're fighting against these powers, these spirits, these forces that are beyond even what we can see. Now, when we hear that passage, I don't have time to go super deeply into Ephesians 6, but when we hear that passage, it's easy for us to default to thinking that Paul means just like demons and the, the Satan and all that. Like that's what he's talking about. And he is, and he is. Uh, he's also talking about like, little g gods like Artemis and Zeus that people would worship and and give their lives to but and and this is clear from the way that Paul describes this elsewhere in his letters he's talking about more than just those things he's also talking about the the sort of fundamental spiritual forces uh, the mystical forces that that rule over humanity forces like um power and greed, and lust, and violence, and pride, and even death itself. Paul thinks of these as the authorities of our world that, that, that give humanity our marching orders. They, they rule over us, and for the most part, we do exactly what they say. We follow along with where they send us, and in the process, we give them even more power, even more authority and sway over us. So that's Paul's worldview of the spiritual realm, and according to him, in Ephesus, this was alive and well. But Paul's message was consistent and clear. His message was that Jesus, on the cross, through the resurrection, Jesus had robbed these powers and authorities of all of their influence. They no longer ruled over humanity. They had been shamed and defeated in, in the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Again, look at what the silversmith Demetrius says in verse 26. He starts by talking about a loss of income, but then he says this. He says, Paul has persuaded many people that handmade gods aren't really gods at all. He's not talking about whether or not a shrine has any power. He's talking about the gods and the powers that the shrine represents. He's saying Paul's going around telling us that Artemis and all these other forces at work that we worship, that they don't have power and influence anymore. No wonder Demetrius was upset. No wonder the silversmiths were upset. 
These gods that they were spending their lives on had become powerless, according to Paul. And humanity no longer needed to listen to their demands. That is a shocking thing to say in a city like Ephesus. But Paul's message was, look, you can be free. You can be free of their control. That is the gospel in a city like Ephesus. This is the fight that he's talking about in Ephesians 6. So now imagine, imagine that you're a normal person in Ephesus at the time. You've got Artemis worship, you've got sorcery, like this is your worldview. And, and now Paul's coming in and everybody's changing. The spiritual dynamics are changing left and right and people are completely fleeing the ordinary structures of the spiritual world. It's no wonder that these powers and authorities, that, that, that the people who served these powers, that they would start to push back on this. This was disrupting everything. They were pushing back because Christianity was spreading, was putting down roots, and these gods, these powers, these authorities were losing their sway. They were losing their sway. Again, this is bad for business, for for Demetrius and his gang. It's bad for business because, and and, you know, the gods of, of wealth and prosperity, they don't love that. But but beyond that, this is a matter of of influence. Look at what he says in verse 27. Demetrius says, I'm not just talking about loss of public respect for our business. I'm also concerned that Artemis herself will be robbed of her great prestige. Prestige. This is about power. This is about influence. This is why the crowd is whipped into a frenzy. They're not upset about a local industry. They're upset about the God that they worship losing influence. That's why they're shouting, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Actually, here, I want you to actually imagine what the chant sounded like. So, I mean, I'm not a Greek speaker, but here's what it would have sounded like, something like this in Greek. Megale he Artemis Ephesion. Megale he Artemis Ephesion. You can imagine 20,000 people chanting that in a fury. Look, here's what, here's what it boils down to. When the gospel takes root, when the gospel takes root, the powers of this world are threatened. And sometimes they push back. When the gospel takes root, the powers and authorities of this world are threatened. And sometimes they push back. That's what we see happening in the riot in Ephesus. And frankly, this was only the beginning. Because in time, and it didn't take long, this movement of Jesus' followers began to threaten the authority and the power of Rome itself. Rome, not just the the empire, but the spiritual forces that that gave it strength. What is the, the fundamental idea in Rome is that what? Caesar is Lord? Well, now these followers of Jesus were going around saying no. No, Jesus Christ, this crucified Messiah, he's Lord. That's an undermining, threatening message. And Rome pushed back, and that's when the real persecution for the church began. That's when we see uh, torture and execution, mass executions and homes being burned. This is what happens when the gospel takes root. The world pushes back. Authorities in this world are not happy with their influence being stolen from them. When the gospel takes root, the powers of this world are threatened. So what do we do with this? What, what do we, how do you apply an idea like that today? We don't worship Artemis. Zeus is not a major factor in any of our lives. How do we respond to a story like this? Well, we'll start with this. 
We'll start with this, and it's just a simple reality that we don't all acknowledge, but it's true, that the powers that Paul talks about in in Ephesians 6, they are still at work today. The authorities of of our world, of our unseen world, are still at work today, and frankly, we humans, we keep serving them. We keep marching by the beat of their drums. And again, I'm not talking about Marduk and Baal and Zeus. I'm not talking about those little G gods. I'm talking about the deeper powers that that are behind their ideas. Powers like greed and lust and, and pride and shame and fear. Those are the powers, the authorities of the unseen world, as Paul says, which give humanity our marching orders. So what I want us to wrestle with together is this question. Do our lives in Jesus threaten these powers at all? Do our lives in Jesus, as we live out our faith, are we a threat to these authorities and these powers of our world? Are we robbing them of their influence by the way that we live out our faith? Are are they pushing back on us? That would be a good indicator. Are Are we threatening their power? Or is there no need for them to push back? Are they perfectly fine letting us live out our life because we're no threat to them at all? That's what I want to talk about. And I'm going to be honest with you and say that, that as a pastor, and I'm, I'm a relatively new pastor, but I'm a pastor, and I got to tell you, I'm concerned. I'm concerned uh, with, with sort of the state of the American church. But even, even here at Grace, to some degree, I'm concerned that I don't see a lot of pushback from the powers. I don't feel like we are much of a threat these days to the authorities of, our, of the unseen world. I don't see them pushing back on us. I'm concerned that these powers, and two in particular that I'll talk about, but, but the powers in general, that they've got a pretty strong foothold in the American church, and, and I'm concerned that we're completely blind to it. In some ways, I feel like we, in general, we kind of have the same mentality as these early Christians who were also practicing sorcery on the side. We kind of want it both ways. We, yeah, we want to follow Jesus, but... These other gods are going to kind of tell us what to do the rest of the week. That's kind of how I feel, and I'm a, little, I'm a little concerned about that. What we need, in my opinion, is a bonfire like what they had. We need a moment to actually declare what is right, declare where our values are, and be crystal clear about who we're worshiping. So this is probably going to be a little bit uncomfortable, but we have to go there because I believe, I don't believe, I know that the powers of this world, they should be terrified of us. They should be terrified of us because we are living in the freedom of God's spirit. We don't have to do anything that they say because we've surrendered our lives to Jesus. That should be our status quo as the church. And I think if we were living that way, we would see the same awe and wonder springing up around us as they did in the early church. But I'm not sure that we're there yet. So we're going to talk about it, and I'm probably going to step on a toe or two, so please wear your uh, steel-toed boots because we've got to go there. All right? Here we go. Here we go. I want to talk, first of all, about the God of reputation. The God of reputation. That's what I'm calling it. The God of reputation is a power that is alive and well in our world, even today. And here's why I, I call it that. Here's why I think of it as a power, because reputation— The God of reputation makes demands of you. It demands that you present yourself to everyone else in a way that that others are going to think highly of, right? Uh, That you play up your strengths and you play down your weaknesses and and you cover over or you lie about any, any mistakes that you've made. That's what the God of reputation is constantly demanding that we do. 
And this has never been more prevalent than in the age of social media. We, we live our lives online now, of course, and the rules of the God of reputation in an online world are clear. Reputation demands that we portray a flawless, photoshopped vision of our life. Smiling children and, and joyful vacations and perfect skin, right? We've got we've to look amazing. Our life has to be so great, doesn't it? That's what we're demanded to, to portray, The God of reputation demands that we have to flex that new uh, car or that new outfit or that new gadget that we've got. We gotta curate our image. And even even if we do it in subtle ways, it's like, I'm gonna take a picture of my devotions and manage to get my Apple Watch in in the shot, right? Like, I want people to know that I've got technology or whatever it is. We we are constantly giving in to, to this urge to be flawless and perfect. And, and I know what you're, I know what you're thinking. Some of you, Gen Z, if you're younger than 25, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, yeah, photoshopped perfection? No, not me. No. no. You know why? No, because your demand from the God of reputation is that you post perfectly imperfect pictures of yourself. Just enough imperfection so that everybody knows how humble and authentic you are, right? It's the same demand. It's the God of reputation at work. We are all, we are all being demanded of every single day. And the the truth is, far too often, we are just too happy to oblige. Online and offline, we want the world to think highly of us. And now look, I know this probably feels like, oh, this is just a normal part of our world. This is, this is 2021, Barry. This is how we live. And I'm sure people in Ephesus would say, well, Barry, everybody, everybody has silver shrines of Artemis in their house. It's just a normal thing. But should it be? Should this be our status quo? Should we be doing whatever the God of reputation demands of us? Because look, if we are truly following Jesus with our lives, if we're, we're walking in step with him, then our lives should probably look like his. Our lives should look like his, and Jesus was despised and rejected by most people. He spent his time with losers. He, he, his life consistently flew in the face of reputation. I quote this passage all the time, but listen to what the Apostle Paul said about Jesus. He said, you must, you, Christ followers, you must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave. For us to live like Jesus... It means that we must wade into the brokenness around us in ways that are not glamorous or sexy. It means that that we've got to be honest about our sin and about our brokenness in ways that don't get us points for authenticity. It means that we've got to be in loving community with people who are not like us and who don't make us look better. People who don't agree with us politically or or ideologically. People of different generations. People who are awkward. We've got to be in loving community with people who are uncomfortable for us or who take too much of our time or people who embarrass us. We don't want people to be, we don't want to be seen with them. That's who we are called to be with. That's who we associate with. Following Jesus, it means growing and serving and and being generous in ways that nobody will ever know. That's between us and God. See, the God of reputation hates true Christ followers because we rob him of his power. We don't do what he says. We, followers of Jesus, we set ourselves aside. We live in this world as if it's not about us. We practice, we live out the self-giving love of Jesus. That's what we do. So let me ask you this. 
I'm just going to ask you this. And again, I, I know I'm kind of sticking a finger in your chest, but does the God of reputation, is he threatened by you? Does your faith threaten the powers of this world? Are you frustrating reputation? Or are you still kind of trying to have it both ways? Does your faith threaten the powers of this world? Now, the second power that I want to talk about is probably even a little bit more deeply entrenched in our society, and it's the God of prosperity. God of prosperity. Now, I, when I say prosperity, I don't mean like money, money as, a, as an idea. Money is a tool that we use. Money is a part of how we go about our business. It's how we survive in our world. Prosperity is different. Prosperity is an idea. It's an ideology. It's, it's the American dream, right? The idea that every one of us is meant to be um, happy and fulfilled because of our possessions and because of our lifestyle, that we all deserve that. That's prosperity. That's, and that is, frankly, a God in our world today. Prosperity makes demands of you too. Constant demands. Because look, if you're not dedicating yourself to being prosperous, then, then what's your life even about, right? You're gonna fall behind. The God of prosperity demands that you constantly consume by Buy, 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 over and over. Uh, you you got to have the latest thing. In fact, go, go live beyond your means so that you can show everyone else how successful you are. Keep buying, keep purchasing, keep getting the latest gadget. You don't want to fall behind. Prosperity demands, frankly, that you sacrifice your family to it. You've got to sacrifice your family. You've got to, got to work late hours all the time. You've got to, got to bring home the emotional table scraps from your busy day. You've got to uh, miss your kids' recitals and let your spouse do all the housework. Also what? Also that you can provide for them and help them prosper, right? That's the, the best lie that prosperity has is that by doing all these things, by sacrificing your family, somehow you're going to help them prosper. Does that sound like it's going to work out for you? I don't think so. It's a lie, I say this all the time, and, and I'm sorry if you're getting tired of it, but look, I know exactly how much money you need to be perfectly happy. A little bit more. Just a little bit more. That's all you need. If you, could just, if you just make a little bit more, then you're going to be so happy, and it's going to be incredible. And when you get there, just, just a smidge more, tiny little bit more money, and you're going to be there. You're going to be prosperous. It does not end. It doesn't end. More is always just out of reach. And that's what the God of prosperity is asking you to sacrifice your life to, that idea. Keep on working. Keep on marching so that you can prosper. Now look, I am not here. I am not here to judge the way that you spend your money. I'm not trying to say that there's some sort of ideal lifestyle that we should all be living. Look, no. Every one of us is a peasant compared to somebody and they're a king or queen compared to somebody else. When I was, uh, several years ago, I had my, my dear friend, Pastor Fred from Nairobi, come and visit. He actually came and spent some time in Indiana. It was his first time outside of Kenya. And he, he grew up and, and lived in a re- relatively impoverished setting. And at the time, I was living in an apartment that was super small. And it was so small, I used to joke that I could vacuum the entire thing without ever unplugging my vacuum. That's how, how small it was, right? And I just used to joke about that, like, oh, woe is me living in my tiny little apartment. Guess what the first words out of his mouth were when he walked through the door? Wow, it's so big. It's the first words that he said. We are all a peasant to somebody and a king or queen to somebody else. So I'm not, what I'm trying to say is I'm not judging the way that you spend your money. But I am asking you to to think about this. Do you know which God you have dedicated your wealth and your possessions to? Have you surrendered all of your possessions and your money to Jesus? Or are you doing what the God of prosperity demands of you? 
I can't tell you. It's between you and God where your heart is in all this. I can't tell you which God you've chosen to surrender to, but I can tell you one thing for sure. You have chosen one of them. You have. This is what Jesus himself said. He said, said, no one can serve two masters. No one can serve two masters, for you will hate one and love the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. I'm asking you to, to think about your values. Think about your priorities. In Ephesus, the God of prosperity was starting to get threatened by all these uh, Christians who stopped buying idols. New Christians were burning their incantation books worth millions of dollars. Not to mention the fact that in Ephesus, their people, Christians, were constantly giving their money away to meet one another's needs. And they were selling their property to support the church and they were overflowing with generosity. So yeah, the God of prosperity was threatened by the church. No wonder he whipped up a riot because he was losing his power. Is prosperity losing his power in your life? Are you making prosperity frustrated by the way you live? Does your lifestyle disrupt his plans? This is America, after all. This is 2021. The God of prosperity is making demands of you every single day. I just want to know, are those demands falling on deaf ears? Is he pushing back in the way that you handle money? Is he going to whip up a riot against you of a bunch of people shouting, great is the American dream, great is the American dream? Or are you one of the people doing the chanting? Does your life in Jesus, does your life and your faith threaten the powers of this world? Now look, I get that this is this is uncomfortable territory for us to wade into, and I'm sorry if it feels like I'm being a little aggressive here, but I think we, and I'm talking about myself here, we have got to pay attention to this because it is so easy in this culture to fly on autopilot and not even recognize the fact that we are in league with the authorities of this world that Jesus has crucified. Are we threatening to the powers? Now, I want to... I want to change tone just a little bit here at the end, though, of this message because I am concerned, as I said, I'm very concerned about where, where the American church is, but I also have to tell you, in light of all of this, in the midst of all of these things, I'm also very hopeful. I'm very hopeful, and I'll tell you why. I'm hopeful because I see the seeds of a, of, a, of a new creation, of a new beginning happening right here at Grace. I see God's Holy Spirit moving in this place, moving in, in our people. I'm seeing the tides turning. I'm seeing lives being changed. And I think that the days of awe and wonder are being rekindled. I think it's happening. And I'm starting to see the beginning of it with my own eyes. For example, I see volunteers and I see staff who think nothing about doing stuff that's beneath them, even though no one's going to pay attention and no one's going to know. You know who you are. If that's you, the God of, of reputation is so frustrated with you, and I love it. I love it. You don't, you don't care what people think about you. You're just doing faithfully what God has called you to. Yeah, reputation can't stand you. Or, or I know some of you are, are just so dedicated to your generosity, both to, to sacrificially giving to, to provide for the needs of one another uh, or, or supporting the work of God at this church. Whatever the case, you know who you are. 
You know who you are and the God of prosperity is, is like shaking his fist at you. He doesn't know what to do because you are just spoiling his plans with the way you live. I love that. And I know, I, we didn't even talk about all the other gods, the gods of fear and anxiety, the gods of lust, the God. We could have gone on and on and on. But I know that so many of you, because I've talked to you, I know that you are working so hard to walk on the narrow path. You are working so hard to, to, to surrender your life to Jesus in every way and to rid your life of the influences of things like lust and greed and pride and power. You're working. You're working so hard. I see it. And even when it feels like you're making three steps forward and two steps back, maybe even some days it's three steps back, I see the direction that you are headed. And I see the Holy Spirit transforming you. And it fills me with hope. It fills me with hope. The powers are losing their foothold here. They're beginning to lose their foothold as the Spirit grows up within us. I think it's only a matter of time before the community around us starts to sit up and take notice. As our lives are being transformed, I think they will notice. And they will be filled with awe, awe and wonder. And soon, as it says in verse 20, this will be true here, the message about the Lord will spread widely and have a powerful effect. That is what gives me hope. When the gospel of Jesus Christ takes root in our world, the powers, the authorities are threatened. And Grace Church, I think when I look at you, I think they're starting to break into a sweat. Let's pray. Well, Father, I know that it is much easier for us to pretend that the struggle is over, that we're not really in this battle, that the, the powers don't really have any sway over us. But, but, Father, if we're honest, I know that so many of us, myself included, find ourselves uh, led back onto the wide path, the, the broad, easy path of just listening to the cultural influences and the powers and authorities of our world. So, Father, my prayer is that you would, would, with your Holy Spirit's power, enliven in us a new view of our world. I pray that you would help us to see the narrow path, to choose the narrow path, and to begin walking in such a way that is so radically different from the culture around us that people can't help but take notice, that people can't help but ask, what is going on there? I pray, Father, that our lives would look like your son Jesus' life. And I pray, Father, that as we live in humble faithfulness to your mission that we would see the transformation that would lead us to awe. Father, I pray these things in the powerful name of Jesus who showed us the way. Amen.